to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George. Try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Paris tries to cut off Hamilton, oh! who rolls up and goes straight on. This is quite appalling. This is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. What? Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Graham is here. G is here. Martin Brundle is not here, nor was he on the broadcast on Sunday, but that's okay. We've got everybody we need. Gerald, damn good to see you. Uh, I guess my first leadoff question before you get us into the race recap is I'm curious. This was a 6 a.m. local start, Eastern time for Baku. Can't wait to talk about it. What were you doing at, uh, or was it, I say 6, it was 7 a.m. local time. What were you doing? Were you up eating breakfast? Had you had your coffee yet? Were you settled in? Did you actually not watch it live? Talk me through your Sunday morning. Well, I had mistaken the start time, anticipating a 9 a.m. start, which I was up bright and early, ready for it, uh, only to realize that when I tuned into the F1 app, it was the post-race show. So I had to (laughs) recalibrate, but, uh, you know, I slept in, and uh, which normally actually works out with these kind of races to, to skip through all of the red flags caused by Lance Stroll and Nicholas Latifi. But uh, shockingly, neither of those happened this last race. So uh, I sat through the whole thing uh, per usual. But how about you? Uh, I was up live. Me and my brother were at the beach with my family. It was 7 a.m. Um, we got up at like 6.30 anyway to play golf the two days prior. So, uh, yeah, it was it was great. I actually think um, I think I like a 7 a.m. race. You know, and you don't get them that often, right? Because that's only for like Russia, rest in peace, and then you know Azerbaijan, and you know I guess Suzuka and stuff. I, I don't even know. We, I mean, we haven't raced that far east in so long. I don't even know what time those would come on. I mean, Suzuka would probably come on at what? Probably six a.m. local. Yeah, there were some weird times. I mean, even like there was like a one a.m. race. I think that might have been like yeah. the the last Singapore race. But honestly, I, I mean, that's my whole case for not even having American races. I can't stand the whole afternoon race time i i love having a good european or a middle eastern race where you're waking up at 7 a.m 9 a.m getting your day started race is over by like 11 you got the whole rest of the day to do whatever you want so i say we just do away with all the the u.s races (laughs) all right so let's get to the race recap i want you to take us through it i'll just kind of briefly orient uh two weeks ago we talked about baku uh you know there's a castle around the track they're known as the kings of chaos in that part of the world, typically based on how the last three or four years have gone. Maybe this race was a little bit different than expectations. But, um, yeah, take us through. What were, your, what were your initial reactions? I mean, at least in terms of on-track action, by far less chaotic. Um, and I think, fortunately for Mr. Brundle, he wasn't there to witness the absolute travesty that was uh, the terrible weekend for Ferrari power. Double DNF for both Ferrari drivers. Magnussen out. Joe out. Uh, you know, you got to wonder, was there a correlation because of the, the heat, the long straightaway, or um, was this some ill-timed MGHU issues um, for all, all customer teams? So a lot of questions there to be had on the, the Ferrari side. Um, meanwhile, Red Bull extended their constructor's lead. Now they're 1-2 in the driver's championship. And Mercedes sort of doing nothing spectacular, uh, but capitalizing on, on Ferrari's failures. And now you know, just a few points behind in the Constructors' Championship. You got Russell sitting there um, in, in fourth in front of Signs, 
and even Ricardo having a great weekend along with Gasly. So what, Ricardo possibly answering uh, critics? FEA all the way. Nah. <laughs> you're, not ready to, you're not ready to crown him, huh? Hell no. <laughs> you're not welcoming <laughs> him back with open arms? Not a chance, no. Um, I, so I got to be honest with you. A lot of people give grief. I, I want to circle back before we get into all the race recap stuff. A lot of people give grief to just like sports broadcasters in general. It's a really tough job and everybody has like super specific preferences. I really missed Martin Brundle in Baku. I, you don't even watch this guy broadcast, do you? You watch the F1 app or something like that? I'll watch it for the race, but I watch F1 for all the practices and qualifying. Yeah. I'm, I missed him, man. I'm kind of starting to think he might like – he might be like receding from the spotlight after his like gridwalk debacle in Miami. <laughs> he's just like so scarred. <laughs> he's he's got to like take mental health days more periodically now. I think he needs a personal brand refresh. You know, he's got to he's got to clean himself from that from that notoriety. Yeah, I like him though. He's distinguished. I think he's a good uh, color commentator. But they got plenty of people. To play I think it's I think it is fun to watch for the race because they are like more entertaining. But admittedly, I think. They're just way too like nostalgic and it's all like personal anecdote and experience stuff. Otherwise, whereas I feel like the F1 broadcasts, like they're a little bit more business oriented, right? They're like really trying to lean into like the more technical aspects. But um, yeah, come race day, you got to go with Sky. I think that's a difference between you and me, though, because I I think I want to be more entertained. And you're just like trying to be informed. You've probably got like eight different mediums of communication in like a swiveling chair, like all in place at the same time. And you're kind of like, you're going to do your thing. And I'm just like scrolling Twitter and then just listening to, you know, the mainstream sky broadcast and talking shit to a bunch of my friends in group chats. That's pretty much my speed. So that's, you know, that's why it's a match made in heaven. (laughs) Um, All right. Well, so we dive in. Um, I mean, I guess question for you, I'll I'll lead it off with a, a question on, on Ricardo. I mean, I posed it. I think he's back. What say you? Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think he's back at all. All right. So historically, I did I did do some thinking about this because I knew I was going to have to defend what is a, thankfully a very defensible position uh, <laughs> after he was, you know, basically given the win based on the McLaren's lack of, you know, teeth and letting Norris through at the end. But um, look, I think he's been struggling in high-speed turns more than anything. Relative to Lando, if you look at all the tracks that they've gone head-to-head on, He's known to be, obviously, the last of the late breakers is like kind of the cliche that's said about him. He's known, and I think the reason the Red Bull suited him, he's known to be very like harsh on his brakes um, through low speed turns, and he's gotten you know away with it in cars where it suited him. Clearly, McLaren is not that. Uh, but when he goes into those fast straightaway to slow speed turns, it's still despite the car suits his driving style better, and so I think he's going to be more at parity. You know, I think when you get to a track like Silverstone. He's going to be, in a couple weeks, he's going to be right back where he should be. Uh, So, I don't put a lot of stock in this. I think we're going to need to see it three, four weeks in a row across a litany of tracks. And then maybe, you know, maybe. Maybe I'll believe and I'll eat my crow, but no thanks, not now. Yeah, I I think this one was a a suitable car for for McLaren. I think it's a, a track he's comfortable with and has had success at in the past. Um, but there's been some interesting analysis of like the, the inherent driver style and, and car dynamic and largely, you know, the cars this year being, you know, being heavier, being bigger, having more understeer and certain drivers who 
you know, favored a car that was traditionally had more understeer doing well, whereas those drivers that liked a little bit more oversteer, a car that had a little bit more snap, um, struggling, right? And you look at the likes of Perez, for example, doing better this year, naturally, and, and even Norris, right, likes a car with a bit more understeer, and that's sort of moved in their direction, whereas the likes of Verstappen and Ricardo like more oversteer. And so they've, they haven't been able to quite exact, extract the, the top pace out of the car. Can I ask you a question? Can you, in a really, like, layman's dummy, like, explanation for dummies, describe the difference between understeer and oversteer? Yeah, I think understeer is you'll potentially have greater rotation in the car, right? And so at times, that can lead to the car to, like, snap into a turn too much potentially spin with the like losing the back end um whereas under so is like you can bounce into the inside of the turn harder than the back end it can stay stable exactly so you'll get some rotate excess rotation into the turn that's why you see like some max being able to like throw the car into the turn capitalize on that like excess rotation and have the ability to correct it and save it in instances where it might go too far Whereas with an understeer car, it, it's more about sort of maintaining speed through the corner and like being able to get on the oh, you might break a little bit sooner. You position the car um, straighter sooner. And then it's more about like you're capitalizing on the throttle. Whereas under uh, some oversteer is like more about trail braking into the turn. You maintain more speed through the corner and you're less worried about like getting on the throttle early. So is oversteer therefore better for tire deg most of the time? Well, I mean, I think it depends on like which tires and, and to what degree. But I, I think this is part of the, the challenge with Ferrari is if you look at how the Ferrari has handled, it yeah. actually rotates a lot and has a lot of slip. And that's where you see the back end almost breaking free a lot on Leclerc's car when he's really pushing it, right? So I think you see him get a little bit more oversteer at times relatively right i think all the cars this year have uh, more oversteer um but but that's where i think he's naturally good at controlling that and the ferrari has a bit more of that but i think largely that's so that's why he's able to qualify better i think that's why signs has struggled more because he like norris on mclaren he likes a bit more understeer and that's why you've seen a lot of instances of like him losing the back end and spinning out because he has less feel for that um dynamic but the likes of Leclerc who can control it are able to now like get hat, like pull out a lap that's half a second faster when he really pushes it and like risks, risks losing the vehicle. Uh, but I do think then in race pace, that actually becomes an issue because it causes more tire deg because you have more lateral force on the tires. Whereas if you have understeer, a driver like Perez, great at managing his tires because he's never putting that excess lateral load into the tires. And he's always sort of patient, waiting for the car to straighten out and then more capitalize on like the rear end. Um, so again, I think that's just like which tires you probably lose the rear end more with understeer, whereas you probably lose the front end more with with oversteer. I like this understeer oversteer framework to explain everything about relative driver performance. <laughs> it's the most sensible one that I've heard thus far. Didn't work out for Perez in this race though. He seemed to be on the worst end of tire deck, but maybe for different reasons. So yeah, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll have to talk about that more because I think uh, honestly a bit of a mystery um, on that one still. Yeah. Um, at least from everything I've seen, no no clear explanation. But um, all right, well we've probably given Ricardo far much far too much uh, airtime for a. Uh, an ex as expected performance finishing in eighth place. But um, 
couple other topics. I mean, if we move up the grid a little bit to to Mercedes, um, you know, despite a, a great performance from them, three four in the absence of Ferrari on the podium, uh, but we saw the team struggling with bouncing throughout the entire weekend. Question is it porpoising? Was it the pavement of the track? But ultimately, you know, some questions of do the rules need to change? Is it a health risk to the drivers? Toto Wolf sort of ringing up the FIA and and maybe raising a red flag that, um, you know, the FIA needs to take some actions for driver health. Hamilton struggling to even get out of the car after the race. What say you? You you on board with uh, some rule revisions to to better suit Mercedes? I just want to vomit all over this. It may. <laughs> It makes me sick that literally, like, at the end of last year, and I don't think Toto's getting roasted nearly enough for this, personally. And at the end of last year, he is going to shit all over the FIA and the governing bodies of Formula One because what happened didn't suit him. And now he's on his hands and knees, crawling to daddy FIA, trying to basically get them to rescue his team out of a poorly designed car by making active suspension legal so that poor little Lewis Hamilton doesn't have a slip disc coming down the home straight at Silverson. Like, I I could not be more categorically opposed to this. People give shit to Christian Horner all the time for playing the politics because I guess he's a little bit more crash about it, and, and maybe people don't like that. I think Toto deserves equal amounts of shit for what he's trying to do with this. And now he's got his drivers playing it up. You got Lewis out here talking about, like, Porpoising being like a public health crisis. I mean, it's just like, dude, like this is, this is like, this is your problem. <laughs> like, this is your problem, and your team can solve it. They're just choosing not to because they want to be competitive in a car that they didn't design well. So don't go looking to Formula One to change the rules just so they suit you. That's like, that's like studying for two years for a test and then literally like doing horribly. And then going to the teacher and being like, can you change the grading scale so that I can do better? Like, I'm completely sympathetic to Christian Horner or if McLaren, for that matter. They haven't struggled with porpoising for most of the year. Like, I, I'm totally sympathetic to anybody who got the error design right and hasn't struggled with this. Because to me, this is just the wrong. That would be the wrong approach. Sorry. You really, you kind of set me off with that one. I'm glad we hit a nerve so early here. So I, I thought I was supposed to be the conspiracy theorist. And meanwhile, you're uh, you're saying Mercedes has sort of contrived this health spectacle in order to favor themselves and make a case to the FIA? I, look, I don't think it's, I don't think you have to call that a, con- a conspiracy so much as just them playing the politics. Like, they think that they have a, you know, a, a material chance of affecting change by complaining to the governing bodies of Formula One in this specific manner, so they're doing it. I mean, I, you know, would I be shocked if Toto Wolf had had a conversation with Lewis Hamilton to play up his back pain in the after race? Like, no. I mean, it more than likely didn't occur, that conversation, but if it did, I wouldn't be particularly surprised. And I do think that Toto's on the horn complaining about it very loudly because he has a, a very specific agenda. So I don't think that's a conspiracy as much as it is just they're being political. So is this what I sound like when I spew my absurd conspiracy you, theories? <laughs> look, like I'm I'm sorry, like I'm just not convinced that Lewis. Like, well, you know what? I'm not going to go there. I'm no, no, sure you- that it hurt. I'm sure that it hurt the porpoising going down that straightaway. But also, George Russell didn't look like he was in much pain in the recovery room afterwards. And I get that he's younger, but like, 
guys. Like, it, it is your problem to solve. You could solve it. Like, you could absolutely solve it. You would just go slower. So they've made their choice. Well, you also act like Mercedes has been on the receiving, like the the recipient end of some benefits from the FII, when in reality, the whole last year, the reason they had to be distracted with the season and not be able to study for the test of 2022 was because FIA rule changes and the floor design disadvantaged them more than, you know, higher rake car concepts. So ultimately benefited Red Bull. So, I mean, I mean, I feel like they have a right to complain now. That's a, okay. That's that's correct, but it's not related to this issue. At the same time that that rule change occurred, they already knew what the rule changes for this year to the era were going to be, and they were working on them, and they still got it wrong. And to sit there and say that well, they were battling Red Bull, so they were too distracted to make a better car. Well, clearly that didn't affect Red Bull. It'd be one thing if nobody on the grid had gotten it right. Then I'm willing to have the conversation about the actual regulation of the cars not being effective. But that's not the case. And we do appear to have gotten better racing and closer following and more overtaking. And and so I just think all of that far outweighs any inequity that some teams feel because they just haven't sorted out the fucking bouncing. Like, I just, it's your problem. Like, if you don't want it to bounce, design a different car. Like, clearly it's possible. I mean, so it's just, it's going to take them time to figure it out. So the the real question is, how hurt do you need Lewis Hamilton to get before you're willing to make a change? Are you willing to sacrifice him entirely? Is that is that? I don't. That's not. That's not a juxtaposition I'm trying to make. I don't want Lewis Hamilton to die or be paralyzed or anything crazy like that's that. That's what I hear. That's what I'm hearing. That's what. That's no, what it sounds like. Also, like, okay, have you seen the movie Rush? Yes. James Hunt, his steering wheel, like, shifter knob fell off in the middle of a race in Suzuka in the pouring rain, so he shifted a steel rod with a sharp end for an entire race and cut a hole open in his hand for, like, 30 laps. Like, that's pain in the middle of a race. Like, unless Lewis has got a slip disc and he's having spasms in the car, like, you know, sorry, man, like, I used to drive a 91 Honda Accord. Like, I know what bad suspensions feel like. <laughs> you know, like, I, I, your team could fix this. They could fix it. And you can't have it both ways. You sat through the pain, but you also got your highest finish of the year. So, I, I, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. I'm sorry. I think it's just hypocritical what they're saying. I thought you were Team Honda, man. I can't have you bad-mouthing uh, engine supplier here. <clears throat> this is Travis. Hugely Team Honda. That 91 Honda deserves to be in a Hall of Fame somewhere with its maroon seats and automatic seatbelts. Safety first. Ooh. Uh, it was it was a chick magnet. Cutting cutting edge. Well, look, you talk about, oh, how serious was it really? I mean, you watched the driver cam, though. I, I can't. Oh, it's like, bad. In practice, he got, was it practice or qualifying? Like, he got a warning for passing, like, driving across the, the pit entry line. And he, over the radio, he was like, I couldn't even see the line. Like I didn't even know it was there. And so we less about like the the impact to his spine and more about like the lack of visibility. That's what I can't believe when you watch the the helmet cam is like they ca- absolutely can't see anything. So how in the world are you picking a breaking point and like calibrating your turn in? It, it's it's almost unimat it's almost harder than any other aspect of driving a Formula 1 car. But to your point at the end of the day, like they'll say things like, "Oh, if we only fixed like the bouncing, we'd have like another second. Well, it's like, well, sure, but you don't have a solution, and like the solution to stop it bouncing right now is to raise the ride height. 
it's a very manageable, doable solution. You just don't want to do it because it's going to push you further back the grid. But it is what it is at this point. So like either you have your drivers suffer and endure that or you make an adjustment. And unfortunately, it seems like I would probably I don't know how like driver height factors into like seating position. I think that means Russell's even more against the ground than shorter drivers like Sonoda. Um, so I don't think that's benefiting him to be taller. But if it is age, then like, yeah, that's unfortunate that you would have to adjust for Hamilton and his comfort. And like, that's going to be a, a detriment. And so I think he knows that. And he also doesn't want to see that because I think he's feeling that he's a bit on the hot seat and on the back foot already. So they're, yeah, they're, they're a bit between a rock and a hard place, but I would agree. I don't think it's, it's the rule change. Other teams are managing it. Other teams are either, you know, have designed a better car. Like you see Red Bull and, and arguably McLaren or, You'd have to imagine certain cars are are raising the ride height and like sacrificing some performance. So choose your path. Yeah, and you know who isn't complaining about bouncing? Ferrari. Fernando Alonso. Mm. And he's like 65. So I don't want to hear this age. <laughs> like get this age, get this age argument out of here. Well, right? that's fair. Like, Ferrari is complaining about it. Science has been the other vocal person, but I mean, they they have the performance to sacrifice, but and they're also choosing not to either. So Agreed. It's a choice from the teams. Uh, and I be hard pressed to believe that they'll have continued to make this choice a year from now. It's going to take time for people to develop into these regulations. One team in particular got it right. Whether they got it right out of luck or out of the sheer genius of Adrian Newey, I don't know which, probably a combination of both in all reality, but they got it right. And the fact that they did in the time frame that they did means they deserve to be up front or to have one of the better race pace cars. So I just, yeah, that's it for me. Nice. All right. So, uh, I want to I want to kick off this next one because uh, okay. you know last week we had you talking about acid and oil drums um, with respect to our esteemed FIA president and um, <laughs> following the last episode he um, has found himself in a bit more of hot water in an interview um, where you know he was asking a, a number of questions and it was it was you know somewhat insightful I don't think he was overly candid in any of his responses but there was one question that came up around. You know, what should the sport not be become, in your opinion? And, you know, he sort of went into this response about how, you know, Nikki Lauda and Alan Prost, they just came out and drove, you know, the whole, uh, you know, and now Vettel's driving a rainbow bicycle and Lewis Hamilton's passionate about human rights. You know, everybody has the right to think, but it's about deciding whether or not, you know, they should impose their beliefs on something over the sport all the time. And, you know, he, he, you know, he acknowledged he's come from Arabian culture and, and he tries not to expose his beliefs on other people. But, um, you know, that caught him a lot of heat because it was perceived as him trying to, you know, shut down this freedom of expression on drivers. And, you know, I think it just it's a it's another example of this interesting debate around what is the balance of sport versus politics and the role that the stars of the sport have to voice their opinions for for broader societal changes um and we've seen this plenty in the u.s um over the last couple of years uh, in regards to kneeling before football games during the or and basketball games before the anthem uh we've seen it a bit in in soccer with some questions about what we're doing in in different countries and i know your beloved sports also uh, of golf is also facing some similar things so curious to get your thoughts here on you know, how did you take the comments and, and what do you think is the right role for, for political beliefs in sport? Before we get into this, 
very unwanted debate about sports and politics, you, you bastard. Do you want to tell people who the hell we're talking about first, Muhammad? Yeah, the president, uh, the FIA president, uh, Mohammed Ben Suleim. Uh, he's a Emirati, so from the UAE, and he has a long history in in motorsport himself. Fourteen times FIA Middle East Rally Championship. Uh, really, the second winningest uh, driver in that in that sport of all time. Uh, 20, 2008, he was appointed vice president of the FIA, um, and became the president as of this last of this last year. And, and really he was a key person in, in forming the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix in 2009. So um, long history in the, the Middle East racing community, as well as the broader FIA community as well. So, I mean, a bit of a staple, very embedded in the sport. And I think largely wants to see it do, do its best on the global stage in a very, very global and dynamic market. He seems to have the respect of the drivers too. You know, every time I hear somebody casually mention him in an interview or something, Lewis especially, because he's obviously so active about seeing change broadly in the sport, like Mohammed seems to have the admiration of the drivers. I, and I'll be honest, I did read some of the other responses to that interview, and he, he actually seemed to – he talked about the just a lot of um, character traits of leadership that I really admire in general, like having humility to admit when you're wrong, having intellectual curiosity to learn new things and adjust and adapt to new information – um, which, you know, are all very standard lines, but when people come by them genuinely, I think are pretty meaningful. But yeah, to the whole point about like politics, like I, I don't honestly read like a lot into his comments because, I mean, if you think about it objectively, like the organization he's leading, and this is true of sports organizations at large, their incentives are to be apolitical unless being political serves the entertainment product that they're trying to produce and drives revenue like that is their goal as organizations. And so, um, yeah, I mean, Formula One has this really tricky, tricky audience, um, uh, you know, as opposed to the NFL or the NBA, which are largely serving mostly U.S. markets. Um, being apolitical for them is even harder because their constituency is so much more diverse, right? Because you, you literally have, I mean, political factions within their fan base raging against one another. Uh, and in, with multiple layers to it, right? Between the Middle East and Europe and uh, in the United States now even, and, um, and and down South America, right? Like, I mean, South America has a totally different relationship with Europe, especially. Uh, and so I think for him especially, it's even harder. So for him to have a more conservative view on trying to make it at least sound like he wants the sport to be more apolitical, I can kind of get it. And, um, but my general view on it, like putting it aside, like reading into his actions specifically is like, look, drivers have a platform, you know, much larger than even like you and I have a platform. Everybody has a platform. And so to the degree people want to state their beliefs and their convictions and their passions through the microphone that they have in front of them, I'm not opposed to that. To the degree people take a step further, uh, from, you know, articulating their passions and convictions and beliefs to then, casting judgment on others as a result of it or seeking for change or policies or things that are then fundamentally oppressive to people who have differing, but still genuine and valid views. That's, that's where the line is for me. So, you know, I, I, I'm happy for drivers like Seb, especially on the back nine of their career to really be advocates for change in certain arenas of life. I don't think they need to keep it in a box, if you will. Right. I'm happy for drivers to make 
make noise. Um, so yeah, I don't know. That's my general reaction. What about you? Well, do you think that there there is a like how big is the risk that it erodes sort of the the acceptance of the sport and the interest around the world, right? Because that's the that's the risk that you run of. And I think largely in the States, the argument that you have seen is like, look, we support freedom of speech, but these are private businesses. You're on, you're using their cameras and their microphones to, to voice your beliefs. There's ample opportunity outside of your time on the track or, you know, on the field to voice your perspective. You have social media, you have interviews, like use it for that purpose. But when it comes to being in the stadium, being on the track, you know, represent, allow the sport to be pure sport. And I agree with you. I mean, I think he is in a particularly tough spot given the, just the regional national diversity that exists. Um, I also think that this sport is interesting. Just, I think in the exposure and the the visibility you have of the drivers, I mean, look at your, your helmet, for example, right? There's, it's kind of, I guess, similar to football, right? Or where you'll have different cleats, for example, and, and put things on your cleats, but it's just so visible on the helmet in the car, you know, you don't have a camera staring at somebody's shoes during an entire football game, but you can have somebody's helmet in the driver cam or when they get in and out of the car. And so it, there, it seems like there's more visual opportunities for people to, to represent their beliefs. But I mean, yeah, if I, I like the fact that Seb wears a couple of, you know, wristbands in, in blue and yellow. Um, you know, I like Lewis Hamilton's use of his helmet. It's very like subtle. It's artistic. It's not it's not for it's hardly even vocal really when it comes to any interviews or things like that. And so I think so far to date, they've, they've found a good balance. Um, I think for me, when I heard those comments, I was already critical of the role, the increased like role that the FI was playing about silly things like the jewelry and like the, you know, wearing the jewelry and the fireproof underwear. And it seemed like they were trying to insert themselves in everything. And now it became like, you already sort of started to set that precedent of perspective. And now it's like, oh, and also in all of your freedom of speech things. And so I, I think it was just like a worrying red flag of like, does their crackdown accelerate? Um, but I think it's interesting. You've seen a lot of step back from this. And I think the fact that you only have 20 drivers in this sport means that they have a heck of a lot more leverage and other athletes in other sports when they're one of hundreds, one of thousands. And um, I think that's kind of the appeal of this sport is the fact that they are all unique and you want your drivers to be unique. And it's part of the driving success behind the sport has been the the growing transparency of who these people are as individuals and what their beliefs are and, and the actual like personalities of these people. Um, and so look, are people going to be pissed off about it? Sure. But I think there's probably going to more, be more people on the other side that are more interested in the sport because you see them as people with personal interests and personal passions that they that they put out there a little bit more. So uh, it's yeah. it's kind of balancing your constituencies. But I think there's probably more people on one side than there are on on the other. I think you made some great points about why Formula One is different based on the relatively small number of drivers. I think that. If F1 learns anything from Drive to Survive, one of the things I should learn is that like depth of knowledge of the relationships with the drivers and intimacy with their personalities, like that stuff sells. Now, when you when you retell it in a way that's factually untrue with a narrative that can backfire on you, like Netflix has kind of seen, but 
F1 only benefits to the degree that they actually give the drivers even more autonomy over their media rights and their expression to just reveal more directly about who they are because people are clearly interested, right? And I think that some of that comes through individual drivers and their media presences. Like Carlos Sainz has an entirely self-published video series and YouTube channel where his brother, like they go around and they just kind of every week they have new episodes and they've obviously figured out how to square that with Ferrari and F1. Like you'd never get away with that in other American professional leagues, right? Like, you know, McLaren has their McLaren Unbox series. Red Bull has behind the charge. Like these, these literally like episodic deep dive, candid, long form video kind of documentaries from every single week. That stuff gets at the heart of just who the drivers are, how they interact. And if that's the direction that you go from a digital media standpoint, which I think is right for Formula One, it's inextricable that you're going to get more of who the drivers are and them expressing their beliefs at the same time. So for you, for for like the governing bodies of Formula One to rage against that in really any substantial way, I think would just be pretty ignorant. I haven't seen them like, yeah, they've done little tic tac things about jewelry and whatever, jewelry and whatever else, but I haven't seen them like rage against it in any any really, really deconstructive way or against the team. And then I think that'd be a big mistake. Well, it, it seems like Muhammad's smart enough where he's going to try to raise some things. He's going to put some things out there, but he's also receptive to seeing what the reaction is. And I think that came through in his interview as well is in terms of largely relying on the wisdom of the crowd, taking a diversity opinions and making a decision from that. And so I have nothing wrong with him putting some things out there and seeing what the reaction is. And admittedly, like that was pretty deep into the interview. And so props to the interview, if it made him, you know, he had gotten comfortable with the interviewer and, and was more candid because admittedly, like, I don't know what his personal beliefs are on every topic, but yeah, I, I, I can see a reality in which he has had to be more sensitive to those around him and, and not voice his opinions maybe more than others. And so I think it's just mirroring that of like, Hey, here's how I think about it because of, you know, the pressures that I have felt in my life. And he sort of reflected that onto the broader sport. Um, but but it doesn't seem like he's, yeah. he's trying to push that down necessarily with an iron fist. And so, look, I'm, I'm sensitive to the, the authoritarian tendencies of any sort of um, governing body, but it, it seems like he's, he's been effectively responsive to pushback and criticisms to, to some of the decisions that they've made, even, even small ones so far. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but yeah, it was interesting to see F1 sort of face that with their, with their, um, governing body's president as uh, they've already sort of been in the crosshairs of lots of controversies between Russia and um, and what and, and at the start of the season. So I think he's managed it pretty well. They, they, they I, I agree. I think the FIA should be solely focused on making the racing as equitable and at parity as possible and making the governance of each individual race as objective as possible. That should be their, their, their those should be their North Stars. As well Managing as safety. driver... As well yeah, as safety. And, sa- and safety, of course. Which yeah. is why they need to address the porpoising issues but, with a potential rule change, right? Okay, shut up. That's not a safe. <laughs> that's not a public health issue. Not a crisis. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but managing driver persona and perception it, is not their job. That is the job of the teams who have the driver, the contracts with the drivers, and it's the job of the drivers themselves. So. Well, I mean, look, there's probably a point where it would get too far. And like, I'll be the first to admit if it became overly overt and and it became the central focus of the sport, like I would find it tiresome and and annoying. Sure. But I I don't think they're there yet. And I think fortunately, there's a good enough dialogue between 
the Driver Association and the FIA, where the drivers are genuinely listened to. Unlike maybe some other sports where, again, you're a massive a massive athlete and your voices really aren't reflected and, and, and don't resonate with those bodies. And so I think they have a good balance going. All right. Interesting. I think we've, uh, I think we've effectively dodged any bullets in controversial topics there. Uh, oh, can I make one last comment? Yes, please. I, your point earlier about can sport, you know, the risk of a sport becoming overly politicized and yeah. people losing interest. I got to tell you, I think that's such a bullshit argument. People in the United States cried foul over and over again when Kaepernick took a knee and all the Black Lives Matter um, messaging was all over the NFL for two years. And, you know, I'm from South Carolina. I hear all of these very, unfortunately, uneducated hot takes from people who are simultaneously massive football fans about, oh, ruining the sport, bullshit. Like, people are all talk. 99% 99% of the time when they complain about sports that they love and have loyalty to being over-politicized in terms of their actual willingness to redirect their attention elsewhere. Like, that is way harder than just complaining about it. And most of the time, people are just complaining about it. So I think sports really have to go, like, really, really have to go too far with it. Um, I actually think the NBA has gotten closer with some of their, like, silence on China, personally of crossing that line than really any other leagues. Um, but that's just my two cents. Well, I think the NBA's bigger problem is that the entire sport is fixed by the referees. So um, China <laughs> aside, <laughs> they got a couple of issues uh, in the NBA. All right, let's All move right, along. Sorry, you brought a move us on, yes. Um, so some other more, uh, on a more positive note, we uh, we got some news this week, and, and Hamilton was asked it during the, the pre-race interviews. Um, around a, a movie he's helping co-produce, starring Brad Pitt. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm very excited. About focus this. on Formula One. Um, Hamilton said he will not appear in the movie, but um, he said, what, "What were his exact words?" Um, I don't know. He, he he clearly has enjoyed getting to hang out with with Brad Pitt um, in the time that he spent with him. But the the movie, untitled at the moment, but confirmed by Apple. Um, is going to be directed by Joseph Kaczynski, man behind Top Gun, Oblivion, uh, Top Gun Maverick, correction, the new Let's one, go. Uh, Oblivion, as well as Tron Legacy. So uh, a, a couple of good movies. Pretty good though. resume. Yeah, good resume. And um, apparently the, the storyline will be Brad Pitt playing a more seasoned driver who comes out of retirement to uh, mentor a some promising young rookies. Which sounds awfully like the plotline of the movie Driven. Um, I guess let's say we have to hope that it's <laughs> a, that we have to hope it's modestly better than that movie. You know, you know how far you have to scroll down the Netflix like sports category list to find that movie. <laughs> that's a deep cut. I'm surprised that's even in their catalog at all. I mean, how much did they pay for that movie? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but what's your? Terrible, terrible. I mean, we have very little uh, information on this. But what's your what's your take on the potential for this as a movie? Just the the racing sort of yeah. movie catalog as a whole. Um, very excited. excited for this. I'm, I'm very excited. I ever okay. About a a month after I snorted my first line of Drive to Survive cocaine, I had gone through the open wheel racing like movie search for every major streaming platform that there is. And my quick observation was like, there's not a lot out there, right? Rush is kind of the most recent 
feature film that's a drama that's got um, Christian Hemsworth and then the guy that plays Nikki Lauda is uh, not uh, Christian Hemsworth, but yes, Chris. Yeah, not Chris. Let's be honest. We were all watching for Chris Hemsworth, right? Yeah, yeah. I never stood a chance. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You're right, Chris Hemsworth. I apologize. Yeah, got, sorry, no. Chris, I'm, I'm muddying Chris Hemsworth and Christian Horner. You know they're so similar. This is not a this is not a pop culture podcast. It doesn't pretend. <laughs> it's not our forte. <laughs> no, um, uh, I can't remember that guy's name. But anyway, um, that was a good movie. But Driven was genuinely awful. I didn't finish it. Uh, Days of Thunder is good, but it's not open wheel racing, and it's just really old. Uh, so for there to be like a modern feature film. Um, I, do you know what decade of Formula One it's going to be based in? Is it supposed to be like truly modern or like 90s? No idea. I'm curious about that. No, no idea. Yet. So, well, one of the questions I had was, how do you acquire the machinery and the cars necessary to recreate race action in like a in like an economical way when you're filming those movies, right? Because what do you go like raid Zach Brown's car, personal car museum and just put all his old McLarens out? on a track and be like, Hey, we'll bring these back to you in a couple of weeks. Like we got to go film. Like I don't actually know how they pull it off because they clearly can't do it with modern formula one cars. I mean, how the hell are you going to get enough of them on a track or even get access to them to film a movie? Like I have no idea what the production's like for that. It's gotta be wild. Well, I, I think you're right. And, and I mean, what Hamilton did say in the movie was he, he, they are focused on accurately showing racing with the intent of driving more interest. Right. And I think what people want to see is, that's good. They want the realism. They want to see what it's actually like. That's the appeal of the whole helmet camera. And I think honestly why uh, Kaczynski's the the right director for the job, because as you've seen with Maverick, it's, I mean, they tried to capture the realism of that by putting the real pilot, the, the real actors in the plane, experiencing the G-forces. Now, do I think Brad Pitt's going to be behind the wheel of an F1 car? No. Do I think they're going to have to enlist previous drive? So I think we're all hoping that it is, using real cars and real drivers and real on-track battles to, to, to create the, the, the footage. Right. Um, in terms of how, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I was just going to say, and in terms of how, like, are they going to be using like this year's car or last year's car? No, I I think probably you could use older vehicles. I think, I hope it's a more modern storyline. Um, I think there has been some good, more historical films like Rush. I think you saw Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, I just hope there is a modern era one. And I think you could probably get away most economically and most effective by, by doing like a, a standard car design, like probably using F2 cars and, and plenty of, of drivers. You, you know who your focal drivers are to do like some early, like lap one stuff, but then probably a lot of your shots are two drivers in a battle and some other drivers like trailing behind. And so you might only need six cars at any time to, to do the bulk of the, the bulk of the shots other than a, some lap one action, but I don't think they're going to be using recent year, you know, F1 cars. I just don't think there's enough of them in production, but something like F2 or it's standard, standard produced far cheaper. I think you could probably get away pretty economically with that. So maybe Hamilton will appear in the movie as a, as a, you know, a driver extra, but not a, you know, accredited character. Do you think they're going to be able to actually use real team names with like real sponsors? Like if they pick a specific time period, so let's say they go back and they find a way to do like a bunch of early 2000s cars with the step nose, you know, where they have the raised front end 
Um, they had the Ferrari with the massive step nose. They had that crazy Bennett, like Benton BMW with like the really high nose. Like, let's say they find a couple of those. Are they going to actually be able to make real race teams or is all that going to have to be completely fictional? So, I mean, you got to think about the economics of the movie, right? When you think of a movie like Top Gun, there's probably some, some U.S. government financial support to make that movie happen to, to drive some interest in the Air Force, right? I think similarly when you see any other movie and product placement. And so are they, if it's not a historically oriented film, there's probably not an advantage for them using historical teams and sponsors. That's why I think you'd probably see it be more modern and you'd probably see that be fictional teams with companies who are willing to pay money to be sponsored in the film. Um, I don't know that you'd get, I think probably existing companies and sponsors probably pay enough to, to build their brand. But I do think you could see the money, the cost of production to be supplemented by all of the sponsorship dollars that could come in with the various teams. Like I wouldn't be surprised if Mellow Yellow had sponsored some, some of the days of thunder, right? Yeah. It'll just feel so much more real. If like it actually is a time period piece with a rough representation of the grid lineup, what the cars looked like, what the sponsorships were, the team names, I just don't know if they can actually pull it off. They clearly have to have a partnership with F1. But I'll tell you what. Have you seen that new Adam Sandler movie that's out on Netflix now called uh, Hustle? It's about the 76ers. Oh, I haven't. He's a bad, he's an NBA scout. Literally, dude, They he's a, he's, he plays a scout for the Sixers. Doc Rivers is in it. The entire 76ers team is in it. Their front office and ownership were in it. And all these other NBA players are in it. It's like literally the league just decided to sponsor a movie, and Adam Sandler played a fake scout. And they had all these legit basketball guys step in as characters. And they nailed it. And it felt completely real. You felt like you were literally watching a recreation of what it's like to work in the front office for an NBA team. And it was so much better of a movie as a result than if they had just like spoofed some random ass NBA team front office and made it kind of a fake deal. So if they can figure the licensing out, man, and actually, actually not only teach you how to appreciate the sport, but also teach you something about the history of the sport through a fic- fictional quote unquote drama. I think that would be best case scenario. Apple certainly has the money to recreate it. And if they feel like F1's got a big enough audience in the U S which it clearly is gaining, maybe they'll commit the money. I, I hope they do. Yeah. I mean, it's all about who's footing the bill, right? Is it Apple? Is it F1? Is it third party sponsors? Um, it, it didn't come across based on at least what you read about the plot, that it's going to be some sort of historical period piece. I feel like you would have gotten more indications of like who it was representative of or whatever, but it remains to be seen. Um, but but yeah, obviously, I think you'd also want to keep it more dry, modern to get that excitement in the modern sport rather than in like the, I, I feel like those historical films probably are much more attractive to like longtime fans evokes the nostalgia. And so that's where I would think it would be more of a modern thing. But all I hope is that there is a a scene that pays homage to Driven where he goes out and puts a quarter on the track. And and I don't even remember what the hell the quarter was for. Is he just trying to hit it or flip it over? I don't know what the hell he literally was like trying to get his tires to spin over the hot tire to collect the quarter just to prove he could drift onto a specific. It was the stupidest thing. Ridiculous. I've ever, <laughs> ever also seen. you can see how poor the cars handled even on the streets of baku and like the home straight much less like what was it la or something where they just like took the cars out and were like driving around the streets like talking about philly you hit one of those potholes 
in Philly, your whole suspension is ruined. So how unrealistic was that movie? I literally have a new rim for my car being shipped to my house tomorrow. So I that's more real to me than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon? All right. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think we had some other topics. I think we have uh, we've delved into a Wait, few of Yeah. Can we talk about the salary cap and the cap oh, on drugs? Right. Can we get into the economics real quick? Yeah. I, I don't want to miss this because I feel like there's a bit of much interesting stuff. All right. So yeah, we got we got team budget cap increases, big questions on you know, certain teams petitioning to to have it raised, um, largely due to inflation, uh, and then also some note on potential driver salary caps in the future. So I'll, I'll let you I'll let you tee off. Where do you want to start? All right, team budget cap increases. I think there should be some type of clause that you agree to going into the year for the budget cap that basically says unless you can have a super super majority of teams vote in favor of a budget cap increase, which means unanimous consent from all 10 teams. You don't raise it for anything other than to adjust to inflation. To the degree that materials have gotten more expensive and you need some objective measurement to know that you need to be able to support more expensive operate, like more expense for the same operations in R&D for a team. Yeah, sure. Enter your budget cap adjustment, but that should be an objective metric that they put in place and they've got a whole protocol around enabling it, depending on what happens to CPI or whatever indicators they want to track. That makes total sense. For some teams to complain because they're used to operating a certain way with upgrades and now they can't, unless you can tell me that all 10 teams are in favor of a policy and they don't think they're going to get affected and unequally as a result of it, it's not worth doing. And, and to me, it's going to fall in the same category as the porpoise lobby. So I'm going to call them now the porpoise lobby who just is playing their incentives, trying to enact change to benefit their relative performance. That's what I'm always going to hear it as until every team is in favor unanimously. Now all I'm picturing is just a bunch of dolphins, like, <laughs> squealing. <laughs> um, People are afraid of the gun lobby in the U.S. You wait till you hear the por- the porpoise lobby. <laughs> uh, you don't want to hear them screeching at you. Um, well, especially, I, I, I too, I think a lot of the things you hear about is, like, the fuel, for example, right? And, and even yeah. salary. Well, and even salaries. But I do think largely the spirit was yes while the budgets is like a holistic thing the real restriction is one obviously the teams to manage their entire budgets but also to have certain teams not overindulge in development expenses and so i agree there's got to be some sort of realistic formula and allocation of cost to fuel and other like foundational materials that all teams need to pay for index that index core salaries, but really you shouldn't be affording larger budgets for what were supposed to be relatively fixed development budgets, because largely you're still going to, you're just going to continue to disadvantage those smaller teams who were really potentially not even going to spend up to the salary cap anyway. Um, so, so yeah, I, I largely think it should be limited where possible um, and only for those, those sort of core materials. On the point of driver salary caps, I don't know how I feel about that, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to be hard for me to render an opinion before I actually know what's in the damn contracts in the first place. How how am I supposed to have an opinion about whether Vettel or Norris or Verstappen should be capped on their salary when nobody knows what the hell they make or what their contract restrictions are in the first place? Nobody has a clue. So, sure, like, public disclosure first, then maybe we'll talk about a cap, but, like, if I'm a driver and the sport has just now taken off, 
And I've been having all given all this time to Netflix and doing all this digital media and all these sponsorship endorsements and engagements for all this new American influence. And now, and, and that's just at the time <laughs> when you're telling me you want to put a cap in place on driver salaries. And to Max's point in his press conference, he said very bluntly, and I'm the one out there putting my life on the line in this car. Yeah, I think that's pretty pretty much bullshit. If I'm a driver, I, I sympathize with him. And I, look, I'm sure Max is making over $40 million a year, and everybody's like, well, could you sympathize with the guy that's making over? I'm like, well, you know what? Call him lucky for getting into F1 at the timing that he did, but he's also really damn good. So, like, clearly, clearly the market thinks he's worth it. Well, so. I guess two thoughts. One, continuing on on the driver press conferences, I, I thought his other point was actually better. It feels like the whole, the, we're out here risking our lives, like, then fine, go take a seat on the couch. I'm sure somebody else is out there willing to take the risk, my friend. Um, but his point of, like, the overall economics of the sport and young drivers getting in and the fact that, like, a yeah. lot of these young drivers are actually being – you know, somebody else is footing the bill, expecting an ROI at the end of the day, and now you're diminishing that potential return over the long term, and so now, and so people are going to be less likely to to support young drivers' career. So that's going to have a net effect on the sport. You're just going to get people who already have money. You're going to get more like true familial paid drivers like Stroll and Latifi, and we already know how that turns out. So uh, definitely against that. I think a better question is why are driver salaries not a part of the broader team salary cap. I mean, if you look at football, many people will argue that the reason that the Patriots and Tom Brady more broadly has been so successful is the fact that he's uh, willing to take a lower salary than, you know, my own Aaron Rodgers. And in doing so, the team is afforded a larger budget to go out and get other players. So why shouldn't it be part of the calculus that a driver can decide to accept a lower cal- salary if it means that he could leave more development budget for the rest of his team are are the driver salaries not a part of the cap i guess you're right they're not no i think it's like the top it's like the top what two or three salaries aren't included so inevitably like the team principal and the driver um aren't included in like the broader team salary cap so i say you just roll it all into one umbrella and and use your pot of money however you want you want to pay a driver 50 million fine but that means you know you got Three upgrade packages that year. Salary caps are not perfect in the NFL and the NBA, but they're pretty effective. If you think about the relative parity of those leagues year over year, now obviously Formula One's very different technologically, right? You need more than just human human performance, obviously, in the sport. I actually, I really like your idea, though. I, 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 I think that could work. But it would be tough to get to. If they could get to it at some point, it would make sense. But right now, the difference in how much the bottom five on the grid are paid relative to the top five on the grid is so great. I don't think you could develop that rule in a way that'd be tenable for the top five at all. Because but the trade-off doubt. Yeah. How much would that bring the teams in line, though? I mean, it's not really going to affect the likes of Haas or Williams because their drivers are already making a million, but yeah, now Ferrari and Red Bull are going to have to, and Mercedes are going to have to adjust you also the rest don't want of their to, budget. You don't want to overdo it and flip this dynamic of good drivers earning a seat in good cars. You don't want to totally flip that on its head and create like a reverse correlation where good drivers are actually going to end up in shitty cars because they're too expensive, right? Like that would just be kind of weird. Well, do you care about getting a paycheck or do you care about driving a good car and winning championships? 
I don't think it has to be that black. It's not It's not all of one, none of the other, right? Like, it's not black and white. It should be both. But I think the point you're making is that it should be both with greater ba- greater degree of balance. And you should force a holistic set of resource constraints and trade-offs for teams to operate within rather than just the engineering side and the human side in separation, which I agree with. So Yeah. And look, you probably have to put it at post-2028 once Max, out, Max is like... You, insanely long contract expires but i i think that's something that they should should consider i've always found it weird that like you have these exemptions and the people who are exempt are the ones who you know most directly negotiated and and sort of informed the the broader rule set so well i tell you we'd be more welcome to debate this if we knew what the hell was in the contracts in the first place that's still my base point here here (laughs) public disclosure would be nice (laughs) We're we're all for transparency of course yeah yeah um all right so I think the only uh, the last point I want to make before we move in into the teams, and I think it's a nice segue as we start at the bottom of the grid, but um, once again, bottom three drivers throughout most of the race, Latifi, Schumacher, Stroll. I mean, how much longer can uh, can these guys go on? Uh, Latifi's fate's already sealed. Stroll's also sealed, but in the opposite direction. There's just nothing we can do about it. And then Schumacher... Um, it's just tough for me to say that I do I think he's earned a spot in Formula 1 based on his performance thus far this season no but I still don't think Haas is going to drop him and if they or if they do I think he'll, he'll still get a ride next year and it might just be because of his name the fact that he brings some corporate sponsors I don't know I don't think he's going to get dropped. Your infatuation with Mick uh, knows no I limits. I like him. For what, on what basis? What at any point in any season, any race, any oh. session so far has he demonstrated anything other than mediocrity? I mean, how long can his name? How long can his name carry him? I'm a I'm a bleeding heart for the good guys. Got a soft spot for the. I'm not saying he's earned it in terms of performance. But he seems to be a grounded, humble dude, despite, you know, he, he he comes from a very privileged background, but also one that has experienced a lot of adversity with what happened to his dad. So I think he's probably got some depth. He's pretty mature as a result. He probably treats the guys in the garage with a lot of dignity and respect, despite his name. Uh, you know, he just seems like a good guy who you're going to want to be around the sport for a long time as an ambassador, if nothing else. And so, yeah, maybe there's a part of me that just, wants the good guy to have some success and be around a little longer than his uncle was. Like, you know, like Ralph Schumacher does not have that reputation. And maybe I don't want Ralph Schumacher to be the last Schumacher other than, you know, his more successful brother to, you know, have his name on a, the side of an F1 fire suit. So, Well, thank God he's one of the nice guys because he sure doesn't have a shit else going for him at the moment. Um, I mean, what do you think about his comment then of, well, really this is like his rookie season because the car's different. I mean – it, you know, it's one of those comments. For straws, that, dude. Come on, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I, look, you're trying to get me to defend that side of him, and I'm, I'm not going to. I mean, he might as uh, well just. He might as well just say, you know, save the engine for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's get in the rest of the teams. We can run through these since I think we've had some lively debate thus far. Uh, you know, starting with the bottom of the order, per usual, Williams, Latifi finishing last, Albon. Only finishing ahead of those who DNF'd his own teammate, Schumacher, and Sonoda, who had a, a broken rear wing and had to come in for a tape job. Um, 
(laughs) Despite Albon finishing at the back of the order, he he qualified 17th, but he was still seven tenths ahead of Latifi made minimal progress in the, during the race. Um, Look, Albon had showed some early promise in, in a couple races this season, but was that uh, too little too soon? Has the shine warned off of, of Mr. Albon? Yeah. I mean, his relative performance against Latifi is still really strong. That car is still a dog. You know, I think this, I don't think we learned anything particularly new about Williams. I think there were maybe some that were tempted to maybe give Latifi, like maybe there's some sunshine through the clouds after the last two races. No, I think Albon just had some unique issues. He had some reliability issues. He had some bad luck. I think, I think we know what we're going to know about this driver pairing and also about this car. I'm not really, uh, I'm not really confident much of that's going to change throughout the rest of the year. So despite the fact that I do want Williams to do well, uh, you know, doesn't seem like it's in the cars this year. So, And and you mentioned Latifi's fate being sealed. You think a uh, pretty done deal. Piastri's got the, the seat for next year. He, he better, man. I, Oscar Piastri is one of those guys that's just so talented and has been waiting in the wings for so long. You just, you just are dying for him to get a chance. Um, so, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think Williams would be really, really stupid not to at the end of this year, particularly if they feel like they're going to have a more raceable car next year. All the more reason to just not waste it. You know, Albon's a good driver. They're going to get, you know, solid performance out of him. Why would you not? And also, Piastri can't be that expensive contractually. So, like, I mean, you might as well. So. I just I just feel bad for the dude. They have him doing every freaking odd job. Like he was on Tech Talk after this race, like showing off his seat and how he sits in a car for like this demonstration of like driver visibility in the car. And it's like he just fills every sort of random time slot and feature feature session just to get like more FaceTime and, and Ooh, Salami Boy? No, Piastri. Like they had him oh, on Piastri. Tech Talk oh, like, yeah. with the seat yeah. and ta- it's like he he's featured on some of like the practice sessions. Like you can just tell the dude is like dying to be in a car, but it sounds like he'll be the in one of the practice sessions in in Silverstone. So uh, he, he's got his chance coming up, but it, it does look like more and more he he's going to be in in Latifi's next seat. So um, thank God for that. All right, moving on to uh, Aston Martin. Look, both drivers qualifying ran into the barriers. Um, Stroll in Q1, at least I think Vettel was in Q3, which I was so sad about because I was so eager and ready to come onto the show post strolls like q1 barrier crash and just rake him just over the coals and then of course like vettel just robs us of that uh robs us of that distinction but um however you know vettel made it into q3 scored eight points meanwhile stroll um left the race with some some concerning vibrations uh on lap 48 and 51 which basically just spared him the embarrassment of being at the back of the grid while his teammate was on the podium and basically doubled the team's points for the year. Some concerning vibrations through his vagina, through the vagina that's between his legs <laughs> and the seat. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that's what they were picking up. That had nothing to do with <laughs> anything vibrating in the car and everything to do with just an absolute pitiful performance, particularly relative to your teammate. I mean, it's been one thing when Aston's been kind of the caboose uh, with both guys, but I got to tell you, don't look now, but ever since Aston came out with their green Red Bull two, three weeks ago, say it ain't so, Seb seems to have found a little bit more pace in the car and certainly more relative to his teammate. I think he deserves a lot of credit for the performance in Baku. Despite the fact that he went off, 
he also did one of the coolest damn turnarounds in the runoff area that I have ever seen in a race, recovered it, lost one place, and with the help of two terrible Ferrari power units, got eighth. Which, look, like, I don't think it was talked about enough. I think it was actually pretty damn impressive. And and could have could have maybe challenged for more had he not gone off. So I, He definitely should have finished higher. He damn near got a penalty for an unsafe rejoining of the track. As, as Sonoda <laughs> was turning the corner right as he sort of exited that spin and, and came back on. But, yeah, he didn't waste any time exiting that runoff area. So uh, it, it did look, as a drifting enthusiast myself, he, he did look damn good doing it. I have a theory that if there was an objective contest of just driver skill in terms of, like, your ability to drift and maneuver a car and do all types of crazy shit with it, and you put all the F1 drivers against each other, I think I'd take Seb. Because I think he he seems like the most sad, or or Alonzo, maybe a toss-up between the two of them, but just like the most savvy, crafty, behind the wheel, just like pure, able to feather the throttle and just do crazy shit in a car kind of guy. Have you seen the um, the promo that Aston did with the old James Bond car with Stroll and Vettel? It's on their YouTube channel. Have no, you seen I haven't. That? No. Oh, so it's like a classic 19th probably 60s or 70s Aston Martin with the wood steering wheel and the classic silver. You know, you can picture the machine guns coming out behind the lights. And Seb and Lance Stroll both take it for a lap. And they've got this camera placed around one of the turns at whatever track they're on. And they show both drivers in, in, in sequence coming around the turn. And Lance, like, overcooks it and spins immediately. And they just show this, like, cloud of smoke. And then the next shot, they cut to it. And Seb is, like, literally you can see him behind the wheel. And he's just got one hand up on it, and he's got like these these opaque ray bands on, and he is just like holding a perfect drift through this turn in like slow motion, and you're like, oh my god, like that dude's driving the shit out of that car. Like I, yeah. So anyway. difference in skill, case in point. Um, well, look, if if I'll be honest, early in the season, I was thinking we need to wipe the floor with both of these drivers, but unfortunately, Stroll's not going anywhere, and so we're going to be stuck with him and and someone else, but. I mean, if Seb can start putting it together like this and Stroll's finishing and, you know, sitting in 19th, 17th, whatever, they'd have to seriously reevaluate that if, if the car has the pace in, in the right hands. But, um, yeah, so hoping for nothing more because I, I would love to see Seb do well. I hate seeing him as sort of this, like, sorrowful, apathetic driver with, like, nothing to race for. But when he's on it, he, he was so stoked um after the fact and and hope hope that continues he's he's the only part of aston martin that i find redeeming at all and i i want him to i want him to succeed so yeah i agree um all right moving on to moving on to haas now basically now tied in the constructors championship for eighth place with aston martin after seb's performance and zero points again for haas what looked like Early positive being a Ferrari-powered car uh, has now turned to woes as as Magnussen retired from the race yet again. And arguably the only reason Mick also doesn't retire with engine issues is because he doesn't drive the car fast enough to take it to its limit. So um, <laughs> instead he just hangs out at the back of the grid and, and preserves his engine components. So at least he won't get any <laughs> engine penalties, um, even though he would be minimally impacted by them if he did. But um, I think we've said all we need to say about them. Um, I, just last Agreed. statistical point when we want to quantify um, how poor Schumacher did. Um, 
you know, he was one second off the pace of Magnuson in qualifying. He was four seconds off the pace of Leclerc in qualifying. And he was basically 30 seconds behind the driver in front of him on lap 28. So in 28 laps, he lost 39 seconds on the oh what would have gosh. been Lance Stroll in 17th at that point. Or maybe I guess it would have been Latif. Yeah. So, yeah, well, look, I mean, you make a case on a track where you're staring at walls on the exit of every turn. Is it in his head? Probably. Is he driving scared? Probably. I guess the bar this week was bring the car home. So mission accomplished? Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. <laughs> baby um, steps, baby. <laughs> Um, so shockingly, when you compare performance so far, AlphaTauri sitting in seventh place in the constructors had a massively better weekend, both drivers in Q3, um, Gasly finishing in sixth place. Sonoda was, I think, um, he was in seven, in seventh place. I'm sorry. Gasly finished fifth place. Sonoda was in seventh place before having his rear wing be broken and needing to head into the pit to have it duct taped real quick. Um, but overall, no, 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 it's not duck. It's not duct tape. It's gap. It's gaffer tape. Gaffer tape. Yes. Thank you for the, for the correction. Um, overall tremendous weekend for them. Loved Gasly's team radio after the fact. I mean, just so positive, so optimistic about the rest of the season and just focusing on the fact that like the team had been more focused and positive this week and it yielded positive results. Unfortunately, Sonoda, who's having a, I think a very good year, given a car that seemed to lag a bit in the early stint, um, you know, he had a rear wing broken. So unfortunately as a, as a Red Bull family car, um, apparently Red Bull can give you wings. They just might break halfway through the race, but um, <laughs> you know, he pulled into the hit tip into the pit, got some gaffer tape thrown on. There was a bit of questions of, should he even be allowed to continue to race? What was your take when, when you saw that you think he should have been let out or you think they should have brought him back in? Oh, I thought they overblew that on the Sky broadcast. Like, come on, man, what's the what's going to happen? Half that wing's going to fly off and then magically fly underneath the halo and underneath the neck of somebody's helmet and slice their head open, like neck open. Like, come on, like I thought that was a little bit overblown. I mean, any given turn, somebody can fly into a wall in the exit and shoot debris all over another car. I just thought it was hilarious, honestly. Like the juxtaposition of this really expensive piece of machinery that's <laughs> repaired in the most sophisticated ways possible. And he pulls into the pits and a guy's ro- run out with a roll of duct tape and are just like furiously slapping it on the wing. <laughs> and then I just kind of, it was like smack him on the ass and back on the track. Like I thought it was hilarious. So. Look, I, I love it. I love the ability to improvise. That's one of my favorite things is like, you know, you've seen that a couple of times with Red Bull where it's like, a couple minutes before the race is starting and they're scrambling to like fix the car or like put it together, get them out. So I think that element of the sport is awesome. I think it would have been a travesty if they told them not to go out. However, I almost think they botched the tape job because they only had it on the front side and they didn't actually, the guy tried, but he was like too panicked to like fully get a piece of tape around the backside of the wing. Um, and if you think about the force, like I thought that, that was still going to cause like some force cause it to split, but the gaffer tape must be pretty damn impressive because it helped through the rest of the race, albeit uh, the long pit stop put put Sonoda, I think, out into to 13th, which was, I mean, basically back of the grid when you take into account all the the DNFs. But it, look, I, I think I'm, I'm hoping that pace can continue for AlphaTauri. I predicted uh, a resurgence of Gasly a couple of races ago. I was maybe a bit premature, but uh, it, it seemed like they were much improved this weekend. So we'll Better see how it than never. That's right. Um, yeah. 
Well, you even, I mean, sorry, back to the, the rear wing thing for Sonoda. I mean, it was unfortunate, but you also heard, you know, um, GP come on to Max when he had a clear lead out front, like, hey, man, don't put the DRS on anymore. Like, literally stop using DRS for, like, the last 20 laps of the race. So, clearly, there's something systemic in that car design that's true of all those teams and probably the Red Bull as well. So, yeah, I don't know what it is. I guess they're just shaving weight, man, and they've got some fragile parts up there. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure what it was for Alphatar. I think that's the the consensus, at least, for Red Bull was shaving weight in the actuator, which makes sense, right? It's on an extreme part of the car, furthest away from the center of gravity. So if you can cut weight there, you exponentially improve the, the stability. Um, so I, I thought the funnier bit for for Max, and we're getting ahead here with, with the Red Bull talk, was the, but the fact that, they're telling him he was saying how his tires were losing temperature because he was taking it too easy and he needed to drive faster to to maintain um was it either tire or brake temp so um clearly a, an easy afternoon for them but um before we get there in full let's uh let's take it one spot up the grid um i think we have we actually have alfa romeo next sixth place uh quite a bit ahead of alfatari 14 points up um take on them this weekend I have no takes on Alfa Romeo, honestly. I think they're one of the most uninteresting teams week to week, aside from Botas's relative performance. I mean, Joe is obviously really unlucky, but I just find him very dull as a personality, so I don't I don't pay a lot of attention to him during the race unless he does something either really stupid or really notable, and neither seem to ever be true. So um, to me, they're just kind of always there, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, they're they're kind of the case again with the Ferrari power. I mean, they just started off strong, but uh, struggled quite a bit this weekend. Never had pace throughout the entire thing. I mean, both drivers qualifying in, in Q2, but, I mean, Botas made no progress throughout the race. Joe, again, unfortunate with, like, a, a mechanical issue, a DNF issue again. I mean, it's got to be frustrating for him because, as a rookie, he really hasn't taken a wrong step, but... He, he, he can't seem to finish a race with the car, but it does have to make you wonder, is it really just the car or is there something that Joe is doing in, in his driving style and how he's shifting? Botas hasn't had nearly the same number of issues or you think sort of Botas has just passed his bad luck for Mercedes onto, onto Joe as his teammate. I don't know. Could be that, that Joe's a pussy. Could be he's doing something wrong. Could be that they're giving him worse parts on that side of the garage. I don't give a shit, dude. At least, I'll tell you what, at least Alpine has the audacity to build a rocket ship in the straights and piss everybody off and create drama. Like, I can get behind that. Like, that's something I can talk about, right? Like, Alfa Romeo is just kind of freaking stale white bread to me. Like, I'm just uninterested. Yep. I mean, I think Alfa Romeo is going to start to slide into the to the background here if uh, if Alfa Tari some, finds some pace and, and they don't. Um, but to that note, Al, Alpine... Fifth place in constructors, six points up on Alfa Romeo. Really solid weekend. They looked great in practice, looked decent in qualifying. It does seem like they they have set up their car to run a lower downforce package. They seem to have a, a, a very strong engine when it's working through an, an entire race. Al, uh, Alonzo was able to finish. But yeah, it seems like they, they designed it for the straights and very low downforce in the corners. And so they probably lost a ton of time through sector, you know, half of the race, half of the lap. Um, but nobody was ever quite able to pull away from them. And so once again, it's, it's Alpine being the bottlenecks for the rest of the field. 
Dude, I, I think they're becoming the bad guys. I would have never thought. You know, I think of a nice, dainty French F1 team. I don't think of horsepower. I don't think of freaking just speed and, you know, uh, just raw power. But God dang it, they've embraced it. And I kind of love it, man. I kind of love the unashamed. We're going to lean into who we are. We're going to just have a freaking rocket ship. And we know it's not going to work for half the race, but we're just going to dare people to go around us. Like, I, it's a bold strategy. And it's, you know, to some extent working for them to the degree that they don't have the arrow or the total package to really be fast in other parts of the track. So I say hats off. I mean, hell, if they still got this car next year when we race in Las Vegas, they might win the damn race. Like, they might go one, two, man. Like, so, you know, I, I think it's at least entertaining. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting how it looks through the through the rest of the season, but uh, hopefully they can optimize their aero package a little bit more because it definitely seems like they have the the top speed. Um, they just need to get the rest of the lap sorted. So, and, and they could be they could be dangerous. Look, I still have them tapped to to potentially move up the move up the field here and ultimately pass pass McLaren. But this week, McLaren, not just one driver in the points. But a resurgence, a return to the mountaintop for the one and the we have only, to talk about this again? the honey badger. I mean, absolutely, Dude, on, yes. We need to. We have to talk about this. We need again. to beat this honey badger to death. Um, no. <laughs> um, some interesting. Wake me up when we get to Mercedes. Interesting controversies this week uh, in, during the race, at least. I there mean, was no controversy. I mean, Ricardo had. First off, how sad does it have to be that Ricardo had the pace? But they actually gave him team orders not to pass Norris despite having the bait. I mean, you got to be in a pretty bad way that season. Uh, yeah, well, cry me a river, Daniel Ricardo. You haven't earned priority on a relative basis to a teammate who scored 85% of the fucking points for your constructors this season. I'm sorry. Like, cry me a river. <laughs> like, I don't want to hear it. You have not earned that priority on the track. So don't. Talk to me like you have. Well, then inversely, though, then what's the explanation for them not letting Norris pass Ricardo, you know, in the last couple of laps and making him sit back there? You think that was the, the right call? The risk that they, the risk that they come together and blow the first double points finish that McLaren's had all season. I don't know. Like, not wanting to disrupt the status quo because they knew they weren't going to gain anything as a team. Whatever the case, they weren't showing preference for one driver or the other. They just wanted to keep the status quo in place so they could finish where they were because they weren't going to get any more. That's that's what that was to me. Like. Well, I mean, at the, at the net of it, I think one, the points weren't going to make that much difference for not just not the team, it made zero difference for them, but wouldn't They're have made any difference all. for Norris. And they did sacrifice Ricardo earlier on a team strategy, which really didn't end up working out. Um, and so I think it was probably a, a bit of a payback to Ricardo to to allow him to have that spot. So I think um, good weekend for them overall. So you know, hopefully, hopefully that pace can stay for Ricardo and uh, he doesn't find himself in IndyCar. I'm more interested in talking about relative driver performance at Mercedes, who I believe is our next team up. All right. <laughs> With that, let's uh, let's move ahead. I mean, look, Mercedes finishing third, fourth on the day. However, Russell qualified over a second off of signs, and the team suffered absolutely terrible bouncing. Unclear if it was the the sort of genuine nature of porpoising or it was the street track in um, in Baku trying to run the car lower, but left. Russell on the podium, Hamilton hardly able to exit his car, Russell getting the new moniker of Mr. Consistency as a, on the podium again. And let's be honest, Mr. Consistency for doing absolutely nothing unbelievable, but just being around and, and present. So, I mean, that's half the battle, but 
Um, you know, he's done a decent job in qualifying, but it, it's crazy to think like Hamilton was what two tenths off of Russell in qualifying and just look at the different race that he had. I mean, he gets a little bit unlucky at like pit timing, gets stuck behind some drivers, has got to battle back. Meanwhile, Russell's just chilling the whole race, just on like a Sunday drive. Game of inches. Uh, look, and availability is the best ability sometimes. And Russell keeps on the road. He does well enough in qualifying to get himself out of the out of the wash during the race. And he doesn't, you know, I mean, obviously he complains about the porpoising, but he clearly manages it enough to get enough relative pace out of that car to put some separation on McLaren and anyone else. So, look, dude, I don't know. I'm kind of done. I'm not. So, let me be real clear about this. I'm not giving up on Lewis as a talent, as a driver. I'm not writing him off and saying that he can't ever compete at a consistent level the way he was last year and the years before if they sort the car out. I still believe all that can be true. But in terms of relative driver performance, given the hand they were dealt, you, I, I'm almost ready to call this fight for Russell at this point in the year because he has been absolutely infallible, like just super consistent in everything that he's done. And he has managed himself pretty well, I think, in all of the conversations with the team and with the press before and after. So, I, you know, I don't think it's getting as much attention as it should be considering people are kind of – Giving Lewis some excuses. They're talking about the woes of the team more broadly in general. But, man, I, I just continue to be super impressed by the kid. I think you should kind of lean into this Mr. Consistency moniker and just – it's kind of lame and stupid, but I think it could be cool as a result of that. So, I, I, yeah, I think he's super impressive. Yeah, look, it's hard to say whether or not he's done anything truly impressive this year if maybe all of his qualifying performances have been crazy extracting the quality of the car. I think we've given Hamilton a lot of scrutiny of, like, underperforming but maybe russell's truly maximizing and i think when you watch him behind the camera i mean he again we've talked about it before he seems to have a good feel for the car suits him probably better than it does hamilton hamilton struggled to adapt you don't know how they're running different parts packages and and testing different things and so but ultimately their pace has been relatively consistent and similar russell's beat him out a little bit on qualifying and that's made all the difference in the world when it comes to race day um but yeah, I mean, I think just to be on par with Hamilton even is is a testament to his quality as a driver. And and so props to him. I mean, he's sitting with 50% more points than Hamilton, up 37, I believe. So, um, and and sitting fourth ahead of a Ferrari. So yeah, it helps to be present, especially when you're one of your biggest competitors is a, a Ferrari who's going to blow up halfway through a race. So um, props to them. It is a question though of what they do going forward. Do they sacrifice their performance to save their driver or you tell Hamilton to, to suck it up and the car's got to do what it's got to do. But tell it, that know, I think physio, uh, he's paying a million dollars a year to, to do their job. I mean, come on. Angela's get Angela's get working some overtime. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think we were, we were both excited about the improved performance of, of Mercedes, but they might have to sacrifice something here. Um, in the second half of the season, if they can't figure out any design fixes. So it'll be interesting to see how that, that manifests. Um, all right, let's get to Ferrari here. Um, the big news, honestly, solid pace all weekend, albeit arguably second to Red Bull throughout all of practice, even qualifying, but Leclerc came in and just put an unbelievable lap up in Q3, absolutely deserved podium. I'm sorry, uh, pole position you got to feel for the guy because other than the one mistake in Imola, the guy has done absolutely everything right this whole season. 
and um, just keeps losing out to mechanical issues, to team strategies, now has fallen to third place behind Perez. Uh, Ferrari is now in closer to Mercedes in third place in the Constructors' Championship, only up 38 points than they are to Red Bull in first, down 80 points. So, uh, And much to, to Leclerc's uh, chagrin during the race, I, mean, I felt or after the race, the I think her name is Rachel, like doing the reporting. She's like, oh, how, how shitty do you feel the fact that you like went out this race? And he's like, yeah, pretty shitty. And then she's like, how shitty are you going to feel when you have to take more engine penalties because of your engine issues? And he's like, yeah, pre- pretty shitty. So she just like kept piling on the dude. And it was like, he, he got out of the car like 45 seconds ago. Like, give the man a break. Um, but I mean, yeah, just heartbreak for him. And, and again, unluck, lack of luck continues for signs. Really not a not a mistake from him this weekend either, but I mean, what's going on? Are, are they, can you still say they're the best car, second best car on the grid? You, can't, you certainly can't say they're the first. Look, it wasn't that, I don't want to overblow this. I, I agree. It was a bad week in Ferrari. Definitely the worst. They're at a low, right? They're certainly at a low season, season low point for sure. Um, but to be fair, they also started the season off higher than they probably anticipated they would. So long-term reality is probably somewhere in between. I don't want to overblow this. I'm not going to sit here and say that Red Bull is uncatchable. We said the same thing about Ferrari four races, five races ago, and we saw how quick the the script can flip. One thing I will say, though, is Ferrari's power unit issues seem to be fundamental, and when they break, they ruin the power unit. What Red Bull had going on was more electrical, more sensor-related. It didn't seem as foundational to the actual integrity of the power unit itself which is a big difference. And to your point, is going to mean Ferrari is going to be looking at grid penalties probably sooner and more frequently than Red Bull. Maybe only to be bested by Alpine and then Mick Schumacher's Haas. So, you know, I I think that's a real problem. But there is real pace in that car. They have many improvements to come. Um, they have clearly prioritized single lap pace over race pace. Um, but I think they can still make that work enough weekends to stay in the fight. And I'm not going to sit here and assume that Red Bull's reliability issues are totally resolved. Maybe Max and Perez come together one race. I don't know. There's a lot of things that could get them back in it. But yeah, today was obviously a dagger to the heart. They're, well, they're I think you're right in. I think you're right in the nature of the the engine issues as well, right? Red Bull versus Ferrari, and then if you take Mercedes into that as well, right? Like Mercedes and and Red Bull lower on their overall like engine allocation at this point. And so, I mean, that's going to be a compounding effect. And so you have to wonder, are Red Bull and Mercedes not running into these issues because they're not running their engines as high? So does is the genuine sort of net pace of Ferrari really that good? Or are they just squeezing more out of their engines than the other teams and sacrificing reliability for week over week performance. And so playing the long game, admittedly it's been a few years since uh Ferrari's been out of a out of a title fight and they might have forgotten how long a season really is. So um you know, they definitely have a hill to climb both in their current deficit as well as what they're going to face from from grid penalties. Well, so when they got in trouble in 2018 uh and they had that back behind the table under the table deal with the FIA what they were rumored to have been doing was basically cheating the fuel injection regulator regulator and just basically like overly juicing the engine and making it run, you know, harder essentially through uh, more aggressive fuel injection, which is like running an engine on, you know, 
on adrenaline, essentially. They were like the Barry Bonds of uh, F1 cars. Yeah, they're roiding up their... So I guess what I'm saying is they've roided up their engines before. They're certainly capable of doing it again. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, but obviously you and I, I have, you and I have no idea how engines work. So like, who are we to say? but, <laughs> but the, 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 the two patterns, right. That are apparent are one that they've had these issues on hotter tracks with higher tri- tire, higher track temperatures, longer straights, higher top speeds. Yep, exactly. And then the second being they've got customer teams that now have symptoms too. So the disease is maybe apparent to everybody who's received, you mentioned earlier that MGHU upgrade that they put out two, three weeks ago. So, you know. It could be a number of things, um, but it's definitely not good. <laughs> it's, I, it's something fun, foundational with the engine that, that will probably mean it's not going to be cheap or quick to fix. Honestly, at the start of the season, I was thinking, man, I, I'm going to eat my words for talking all this shit about Ferrari. But uh, admittedly, I feel I feel quite vindicated here between uh, strategy failures and engine failures. Um, I, I'm still not convinced. I still don't understand why drivers universally want to go to Ferrari. Um, It seems like historically there are enough examples of why that is a bad career decision. But, um, you know, some some people have to learn the lesson for themselves, I suppose. All right, let's cover Red Bull and then get through the rest of our agenda. We're we're running up on time. (laughs) Running up on time? (laughs) We're out Uh, of time. We're well out of time. Um, Look, leading all weekend... Couldn't match Leclerc on qualifying, but consistent to pass races, better on tire dag. I think they're they're more well suited for race pace. Um, they were the only team not to fit pit under virtual safety car, and yet, and I think honestly, they were a bit vulnerable to Leclerc in the later half of that race. And and I think, but we're never going to know. They were robbed. Of, we were robbed as fans of of I think a late race battle. Um, but now they're eighty points clear. And, and, you know, Perez got the, the fastest lap, but ultimately lost out to Verstappen. I know I predicted Perez to win, and I thought that was looking like pretty good throughout most of the weekend, but Verstappen just came through with the pace so much so that, um, you know, he was told to slow down and save the car. Car was cooling down so much. Um, basically, they were taking it easy up front. Um, really, as we said earlier, unclear why Perez was wasn't able to match the pace throughout the whole of the race. I mean, I think there was some suspicion on the first stint that he exhausted his tires too quick into that um, higher deg. But even later on on the hards, he, he just couldn't largely match P- Max's pace and finished, what, 20 seconds behind. So I don't know if they were running some different parts that had a bit of a different setup based on driver preference. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Max just looked unbeatable uh, come race day thoughts on red bull no i mean i think um yeah look perez's i would sit here and say perez's inability to keep max's race pace was a head scratcher but i genuinely believe max is a faster driver and so i credit him for figuring out the tendencies of a car that changed year over year in a way that didn't suit his style and found still found a way to get race pace out of it, even on a track where he doesn't have single lap pace of Perez. So like just credit to him, man. I mean, he's a good driver. Like I, there's not much else, much else you can say about it. So, um, yeah, we talked about driver style a little bit. I think it, it is interesting. He doesn't seem to be able to extract that one lap pace come qualifying. It just doesn't seem like he's as comfortable with it, but it, it's been good to see Perez. You've seen him like push it close to the wall. You've seen him touch the wall a little bit in practice and in qualifying. And it's, it, 
you didn't really see that last year. He always seemed very tentative with the car. And so it's, it's good to see him on the limit quite a bit more. But yeah, I mean, through a whole race distance, it, it seems tough to for him to, to be Verstappen as much as we hope so. I agree. My, my prediction will be when we get back to some tracks that have more kind of typical high-speed turns, I think Max will get back ahead in qualifying. Yeah. But um, yeah, he struggled in the slow speeds and, and getting yeah. car rotation and being able to maximize the exit. So, so yeah, as much as, as exciting as it is to see Perez off, what, like 30 points uh, right now, it it seems as though it's only a matter of time before that, that gap gets bigger. So I guess, what, 20 points now. So um, all right. I think we've covered the teams pretty well. It was a good week uh, overall, maybe not as exciting as we were hoping uh given the ferrari dnfs but um in terms of personal podium i had to give it to to alfatari to gasly in particular um both drivers did well though and and hoping that form continues how about you who do you have for personal podium uh i'm gonna say christian horner uh first off because i just don't think he gets enough credit about how healthy the driver dynamic is at red bull right now that they've gone one three and one two consecutive weekends with different drivers winning and seem to have had no deconstructive banter anywhere in the press other than from Jos Verstappen, but also fuck him. I don't really care. So that is, a, I think, a massive accomplishment, and that is his primary job as team principal to manage driver personalities. And, you know, Max can be a tough one, and so I think he's actually doing a pretty pretty great job. Uh, Russell, we've already talked about him. And then uh, Baku, man, I just can't say enough. I love this track. I've said before this weekend, it's my favorite track on the calendar. I still believe it to be so, even though we didn't get as much chaos as we thought necessarily. Um, the coolest camera angle on the calendar is the one where they shift between the castle windows around that slow speech chicane. And like one, they're like six times on a Skype broadcast. I'm like, oh man, this is so cool. Anyway, just love I love that fucking that. castle, man. Yeah, I do. Um, all right. How about on the other side, DNF of the week? Uh, I'm going to go back to my uh, my main man, Latifi, because I, I, I just want to remind everybody, because I was reminded this week, that uh, he is actually 21st in the driver standings uh, on a grid that, yes, if you're doing the math in your head at home, only includes 20 drivers, because he's behind, he's ranked behind Nico Hulkenberg for his two performances with Aston Martin, because he actually ran in the points at one point during the race. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to go back to Latifi. Fair, as usual. Thanks for uh, covering that for both of us. And, uh, I mean, no surprises. You got to give it to Ferrari Power. I mean, huge disappointment across the manufacturer team, the customer teams, four DNFs, I believe, uh, across the board. So, yeah, uh, ugly for them this weekend. Hopefully they can turn it around. Not for our own personal uh, team favorites, but more so the quality of the sport. I mean, if Red Bull runs away with this, it's it's going to be a bit bland, just like it was when Mercedes did likewise. So, um, hopefully they, they pull it together here. All right, let's do a quick look ahead. I know we're well over, but Montreal, uh, coming up next weekend, I'll actually be on the ground for that one. So excited. I'm sure it won't hey. be quite the spectacle and the, the opulent the cherry. Fa- that's right. The opulent fanfare that, uh, that Miami was, but I think, uh, M- Montreal has plenty to offer. Um, Canadian GP been on the 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 list since 67 it actually alternated between a couple of different racetracks during that time two previous tracks um ended up going to the waste bin because of safety issues the current track um situated just on an island around the city 
uh, 2.7 miles in distance. That's going to give us 70 laps for the race. It's got 13 corners. Uh, ultimately, a similar kind of, a, as different people have said, a kind of a similar dynamic to Baku, actually, right? Kind of a track of two halves. It's got a long, a lot of, half of it's a bunch of corners, and the other half is basically a long straight, but this time has a, a, a wide kind of long chicane or an S-curve, if you will, um, splitting up the straight. But, um, you know, if we look back to past races, um, Schumacher, Hamilton, both tied for the most wins at seven. Uh, last couple of years have been canceled due to COVID. 2019, Vettel pulled, but ultimately finished second behind Hamilton because he ran through the grass and got a, a penalty for an unsafe rejoin, pushing Hamilton wide. And this was the infamous race where Vettel you know, I think either stopped early or pulled in weird and then switched the, the, the first and second place signs and moved the second place sign in front of Hamilton's car. Uh, after he found out he, he got the five second penalty. Um, and then before that he actually won the race with Ferrari while Botas got second followed by Verstappen in third and Hamilton in fourth. So, um, it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Any predictions for, for the week? I, I hate to be the guy that when you ask for predictions, more or less gives you a carbon copy of the relative team performance from the week prior, but that's just kind of how I feel, man. I mean, I think uh, I don't have enough personal data on Canada uh, to really have an informed opinion, but I'm going to say that I think it's going to be another strong weekend for Red Bull, and I'm hopeful that at best we'll get Charles Leclerc without a power unit issue on an alternative strategy, making it interesting in the last five laps is what I'm hopeful for, but yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think the nature of the circuit will probably prevent maybe some of the extreme bouncing for Mercedes. So they should have hopefully a bit of a smoother weekend. Um, and I think the, the chicane breaking up the, the long straight on the track will, uh, sort of hamper Red Bull a little bit more than what you see in Baku. So I would argue it's going to be even closer, potentially, uh, beneficial for Ferrari this weekend. So I wouldn't be surprised if you actually see a, you know, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Ferrari, two men on the podium, maybe even one, two. Oh, wow. Uh, hmm. I've, I've been trying to press the hot takes a little bit. You know, I, I'm typically the carbon copy prediction guy, but, um, you know, Perez almost brought it home with the, the two in a row. So I, I'm going to go out on the ledge one, two Ferrari. But All right. Leclerc, Leclerc taking it. My, I think it's going to be Verstappen, Leclerc signs. Maybe Perez has a bit of an off week after a nice streak of of good of good uh, good races for one reason or the other. Uh, I'm also going to go bold here, as much as I despise saying this, because I'm a big fan of the home Grand Prix and say surprise Canadian driver in the points. I'm thinking. Never mind. Going. That's completely impossible. Now that I've actually thought about it. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to go double DNF for the Canadian drivers. I'm, I'm here for that. I would love to see that. I think that. I think this is going to be one of those scenarios, like when Philly sports fans boo the Eagles when they're like 500 for the season. I think that they genuinely might boo Latifi and Stroll because they're so ashamed of them as as fellow compatriots. You know what? And I will gladly join in that booing right alongside. <laughs> so maybe I might even be the one to start it. What do you think? Should I? I'm should so- I start a Bitter that that godforsaken country has two drivers in F1 and we have zero. It just, just pisses me the hell off, man. Oh, God. I love Canada. I'm sorry. I don't. I... 
It's, I mean, they're practically a, a province, right? So they're a province <laughs> of America. So they're, they're basically American drivers, which I'm equally as unhappy about if, if that were true. So, uh, but yeah, time will tell, man. I, uh, I look forward to telling you all about it uh, come next week. So I'll see you. We'll talk to everybody else then. Have a good week. All right. Thanks, G. Good to see you, bud. You too. See ya. Bye.